Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's inherit the earth because no one else is taking it. Come on, do your worst before the moment's past. In bedrooms across England and all the Western world, there's posters and there's magazines that Why, what secrets have you got, Dave? So many secrets. <laughs> so many secrets. <laughs> we call him Secrets Dave. <laughs> or at least we do now. We do now, yeah. It's on record. Um, so, Frank, we've got a bit of Beatles mania happening out the front of Waterstones in Birmingham. Birmingham City Centre has I not seen that, a crowd I like this. this since... was, that was Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're in Birmingham. Where though. I was this morning. This is this Beatles mania is wherever you go. Oh, I see. At the moment, okay. it seems. There's extremely misguided people. They've so got the wrong band. You're in the thrall of a UK book tour yes. signings live Q&As live performances yes. um, you've got two coffees I do um, two coffees Turner <laughs> you've got like a me. long one and a chaser yeah right exactly um, and actually today it's lovely to first of all it's lovely to see you man lovely to see you dude um, yeah, sorry I've just kind of gone in guns no, no, blazing like good. a bull in a china we're, we're pros we're good at this um, the, it's, it's uh, an auspicious morning because today is publication day um, oh is it really which, which is right. funny because like I mean obviously we've been selling and the books for the last few days anyway yeah. and like you know they've been shipped out by Amazon and all that sort of crap but like officially as of two hours ago the book is available fuck yeah dude um, well so congratulations thank you very much cheers yes. let's yeah, toast cheers. Let's with China hot drinks for that yeah 
Um, but it's exciting. You know, I now have two books. I am now an, an author for real. Definitely, it wasn't a yeah legit. Wasn't an error the first time around. I've got to say, with this book, I just finished reading it last night, so it's very much fresh in my mind. <laughs> and we're just going to talk solely about the book today, Great. if that's cool with you. Very much. Um, so. Much like your music, it's incredibly open and honest, and I love the way that your own music isn't above reappraisal and criticism yeah. from yourself, and you're very uh, just upfront with the way you feel about songs. Yeah, and- well, that struck me as a really important thing to do because, um, well, so first of all, the genesis of the book was that I wrote the book about touring, and it's a book that covers about 1,200 shows, and it occurred to me that in writing about 1,200 shows, which is quite a lot of shows, I hadn't ever really talked about the songs I was playing whilst doing that, which put me in mind of the fact that um, at the Independent Music Awards in 2012, I won an award for being hardest working artist, uh, and then I won an award for being best live act, and I was quite pleased that I got the second one because it's possible to be the hardest working artist and still be shit. Yeah, yeah, of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like there's no. You gotta love a try, but you still suck. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like that's an award for for quantity rather than quality. So it was nice to get a quality one as well. So similarly, it, it just sort of it struck me that I should it was there was a gap there and that that could be filled if I felt like it. So book about songwriting but sort of uh, about a third of the way through the process I realized that I was in danger of writing a book about how brilliant I was um and that would be trying for a reader I suspect and I just I just think it's more interesting to talk about if if you're it's it's not a manual about songwriting but it has a sort of didactic angle you know it's supposed to hopefully if you are interested in songwriting to learn something and you learn as much from your failures as you do from your successes I think well, you also kind of very openly wear your influences on your sleeve mm. and you'll say, I got that idea directly from this person, directly from this song. And I'm not a songwriter, but I could imagine anybody who does write music for a living or for a passion would very much feel like the fuel is lit inside them after reading this book. Because it does, as you mm. say, it's not a tutorial, but it definitely does break down, I guess, some of the, the methodology. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes. And, but I mean, I'm interested in your take on it as someone who doesn't write songs, because I was also whilst writing it was keeping in mind that I wanted it to be a book that would be of interest to people who aren't songwriters. Do you know what I mean? And and, and I didn't want it to be just a thing where if you're like, well, I don't play guitar and write songs, therefore this book isn't for me. I don't want that to be the case. Of course. So my honest and upfront opinion Here is that I loved it um, <laughs> as basically an autobiography. Yeah, uh, it's kind of, it, it has is, a really. strong element of autobiography to it because I, partly because um, uh, I write in a confessional style. Of course. I always have yes. done. Yeah, if your um, music was different, it would have been a very different yeah, book. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I am, I'm not, this, I get crucified for saying this, I'm not a huge fan of Tom Waits' music, but I am fascinated by him. And part of the reason I'm fascinated by him is because his approach is so radically different from mine. Because his music is, in the strictest sense of the word, performance art. He plays yeah. a character. I, I think Tom Waits is a character. Of course, yeah, you know he's I mean? become one of the characters in his yeah. songs. And, but I mean, in, in, from what I know about him, his personal life is extremely private. Uh-huh. And he doesn't do much in the way of interviews. And he you know, never really talks about his life. And I think he's happily married and has this life that is completely out of the public glare. And I think that's a really interesting take. Obviously, it's radically different from my approach to it in the sense that, like... To a degree, my songwriting has been a public form of therapy over the last decade. Um, and I think that's what people love about your music, and that's their yeah. connection to it. Right. And I mean, for me, that's what I like in the music that I listen to. And so, and therefore, in terms of being influenced, that's what I want to do. You know, I mean, one of my first loves, which I talk about in the book, is Counting Crows. And, and what I love about August and Everything After is, is the sound of a man deconstructing himself very publicly. 
and I've always loved that. Or, or Arab Strap, who are another huge influence for me. Like I find Aidan Moffat's lyrics actively difficult to listen to because he's so excoriating about himself. Arab Strap is the close sound, to the bone. Yeah, it's a man, the sound of a man bearing his chest and stabbing it with a scalpel in front of you. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, uh, the, I mean. Um, uh, Pax of Three, just at the end of that song, where the lyric is, um, you said I'm an asshole. what was I thinking? It's far too easy to blame it on the drinking. And it's just, that is, it, wow. Poetry, like, isn't it? It is poetry, but it, it makes, uh, my, hand, my hair is standing off my arms inside my jacket as I recite that line. Um, so, you know, that's that's my approach to it. But I, I like I say, I'm, I respect Tom Waits, and I'm interested in that very different approach to art. Because, of course, not all art has to be confessional. It just happens to be the art that I make. Well, you mentioned in the book, and we should probably shout out Jay here, as you mm. do in the book. Yes, uh, after, so. after Million Dead finish, and you're trying to figure out where to go next and trying to find your voice, you say in the book that there was a moment where you had almost, I guess, like a, an epiphany, a, re- yeah. a revelation, which was, I guess, kind of thanks to Jay. And it was this Very idea so. of we can be the heroes of our own stories. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Jay, I was in the middle with Million Dead. I wrote deliberately obtuse lyrics. And there was, whilst I'm extremely proud of everything we did in Million Dead, there was definitely, listening back to it now, I hear the sound of a young man trying to prove that he's read a lot of books, which is not necessarily the purest artistic inspiration. You know what I mean? Um, and... Uh, and they were deliberately complicated, and I was trying to sound clever and all this kind of shit. And then, and then I and heard, the music was too. Yeah, and then I heard Jay singing a song with three chords about last weekend, and thought, "Fuck me, that's." I mean, it's it, it was it's simultaneously very folk and very punk in its way. And it, as I discuss in the book, the, the expression folk punk is a slightly troubling one for me in the sense that it's facile um, and, and reductionist. But nevertheless, like that was a, a huge thing for me. Interestingly, I sent a copy of the book to Jay because he's one of the three people I dedicated it to. And I thought that was the appropriate thing to do. And Jay was very sweet about it. And he wrote back and he, and he sort of said, I had no idea. Oh, really? Yeah, and he sort of said, not least, the song specifically that I mentioned is Steve and the Secret Chinese Army, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was about the, our mate Steve took acid and thought that he was being hunted by Chinese soldiers. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> and Jay wrote a song about it the following week. And Jay sort of said, I thought that was a throwaway song. I've never, I haven't even thought about that song for 15 years. And, uh, and I was like, well, you know, careful what you write, I suppose. You know I guess I mean? it's that thing that one man's sort of throwaway uh, is another man's you yeah. know, lightning bolt, isn't it? Well, I mean, that brings up an interesting thing for me, actually. And obviously, everyone has different perceptions of of different songs and different art and all the rest of it. Um, in choosing to write bits of the book about what I consider to be my less successful moments as a songwriter, my reticence about doing that was just simply because in the past, whenever I choose to talk about a song of mine that I don't think is as good, it always turns out that the person I'm talking to has the lyrics tattooed on their chest oh, and is then heartbroken because I've just told them I don't like the song that is their passion. It's changed much. my life, man. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Finally, off the very first tattoo of any lyrics of mine I ever saw um, uh, on the first Million Dead record, which I'm very proud of, there is only one lyric on the record that I would change if I could, and that was on the, the whole lyric. album. On the Amazing. whole album, that was the lyric the guy had tattooed on his leg, and I was just like, "Oh wow!" Um, <laughs> I mean, in a way, it sort of makes me reevaluate it and think maybe it is a good lyric after all. But it was just kind of like, I can't fucking believe it. Of well, art's so subjective choices. as well, isn't it? And that's kind of right. case in point there. Yes. And I think I also, again, as I say in the book at length, I think that something I was wary of is like, I, d- I, don't, I don't want, I don't necessarily want this book to change people's opinions of the songs, that, that or, or at least their connections to the songs. I think that interpretation is paramount. Do you know what I mean? And, and um at the risk of invalidating the entire project, I don't think that, that I, I don't want to stand there and be like, no, this song means this. 
because a song means whatever you think it means. Yeah. Um, and and if and there is no wrong interpretation of a song. There's no wrong interpretation of art. That's a ridiculous concept to me. Um, interpretation is key. Interpretation is almost the funnest part, actually. To put something out into the world and then see somebody take a different take on it is fascinating to me. Um, there is a guy in Germany who has a theory that all my songs are part of a grand scheme. Yeah. And, and he's wrong. But I told him he was right because I want to know where he's going with it. And I kind of wait for updates from him <laughs> on, on like, you know, how all of the characters are interrelated. I mean, they are to the extent that it's mostly about my life. Yeah, but like, yeah, yeah. you know, he's just kind of like, well, this person is actually the person mentioned in that song. And it's just like, really? OK. I imagine he's got a, like a cork board with like bits of string and drawing pins on it. And I'd love to see it. There's a moment in the book where you talk about one song. I think perhaps it's the I Knew Proof Rock before he got famous. Yeah. You were saying you were kind of at the end of a massive touring schedule. You were knackered. You were having one of those nights where you're like, oh, man, I need to fucking pull the energy out of the bag somehow. And you yeah. said you looked down in the crowd and there's a guy. Is it this song? Yes. There's a guy yeah, yeah, with his yeah. eyes closed singing along to every word. And again, you sort of say, well, I have one of those moments where I realize that the song's so deeply personal to me. Yeah. Somehow is so transcendental and universal. Yeah. yeah, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing, and it's a humbling thing, and it's a thing that you can't really aim for as a writer. You just have to sort of hope it works out that way. I think the metaphor used in the book is it's like a magic eye picture. You can't look directly at it. You know, you have to just sort of slip into it. But, um, I mean, it's it's a funny thing. One, one, something that I take great joy from is the fact that, like, it never occurred to me to use fake names in Proof Rock, that all the people mentioned in that song are real people. And, um, you know, many times over the years, I've introduced someone to Dave Danger or Tree or whatever, and they kind of do a double take and go, wait, what? Uh, the person uh, from the song. Yeah, totally. And, uh, and, and, they, and they kind of go, oh, okay, fuck, it's a real thing, which I quite like. The, the other one with that, which I, um, so Dan's song, which I don't talk about at length in the book, but um, when Proof Rock came out, it was essentially a list of the people who lived and worked at a bar called Nambuka in North London in about 2004. I'd love um, to go back to that in a moment. Okay, well. yeah, sure. Uh, 2005 maybe, but um, I, I forgot Dan. Um, and, and it's an easy syllable to get into a song, do you know what I mean? It's not a challenge to get the word Dan, and it rhymes with quite a lot of stuff yeah, yeah. and all this kind of thing. And, um, and when the song came out, he was I think he was genuinely a bit hurt and was like, oh. I'm not on the radar. What, yeah, man. why? Yeah. What? Oh. I don't matter. And, uh, and I was so mortified because it wasn't a deliberate slight in any way. Yeah, yeah. So I then wrote Dan's song in order to set that right. Uh, but then since then, I have met so many people who have not, it's never quite the individual themselves. It's always like, oh, yeah, you wrote a song about my mate Dan Johnson. And I'm like, no, I fucking didn't. Who the fuck <laughs> is that? So I think there's quite a few people who have claimed to be Dan. Danny Varley, as his name actually is, um, was for a time known as the real Dan. There you go. Um, uh, I think he's moved beyond that <laughs> in terms of his nomenclature. <laughs> these days but um he's a lovely man uh, that scene at that time tell me about it because it seems like a lot of people who were around then went on to do yeah great things <clears throat> and for me there's this kind of magic to certain places and times you know be that cbgb's in the 70s or yeah you know it seems like there's always one club uh, or a venue or a space a yeah. place and then somehow this loose collective of people yeah all at the same point come up together and almost, for the large part, all go on to do yeah. at least something of Well, note. I've been lucky in my life to actually have that happen to me arguably twice. Um, uh, the first time, uh, the UKHC scene that I was part of when I was a teenager... And, and was definitely just a bit, you know, a, a minor bit player in. I was in a band called Knee Jerk, and I put on, like, three shows or something. But um, I do often run into people from that scene who are doing things in the music industry. For example, Sheep, um, who used to put on hardcore shows in Leeds, now tour managers bring me 
the horizon. Do you know what I mean? And like um, you, uh, Matt Cabani, who used to just video shows, now promotes me in Italy. Like, and and it's kind of cool um, that we were all like teenagers had no idea what we were doing, and many of us. It, it's because of the it was the the philosophy of DIY that. It, you know that that idea of just like just fucking do it don't wait and and that's been really helpful for a lot of us the nambuka thing um you know i sort of stumbled into this scene um it was a running joke when i first showed up because i came down socially and they were very heavily involved in the kind of mid-2000s um guitar thing the libertines kaiser chiefs all that kind of business and i didn't like any of that music and nobody in that scene liked million dead and it was a bit of a joke that i was the musical outsider um and how did you end up there then uh, because I was friends with Dave. <laughs> right, right. Um, in fact, Dave, I, I won't go into the details, but Dave did me an enormous solid in my personal life right. at a time when I didn't know him very well. And I thought, wow, you're a thoroughly decent I want to be person. close to this guy and in yeah. this scene. Cause and, and, and I just started hanging legit. out at the bar because I'd sort of become alienated from the other bar I used to hang out at. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and then made friends with everybody. But it was it was funny. And, I mean, there was actually an incident where um, Million Deads played at Reading 2005 they used to run the club nights at Reading. We always used to go down on the Thursday night. And everybody came to see Million Dead for the first time because we were there anyway. And they all walked in and there were shitloads of people there. And everyone was like, holy shit, people like your band. And I'm like, they do. Like, your world is not the entire world, you fuckers. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, so uh, the thing is, that the, my, my wariness about talking about it is that I don't want it to sound cliquey and exclusionary. because, and, I, and it quite easily can sound that way. And I understand that. And the thing was that, that I... There were no barriers to entry. Literally, Danny was part of that scene because he just showed up. One day, Danny was just there. And everyone went, okay, you're nice. And that carried on. I mean, I think the only... Well, I guess the only barrier to entry was kind of like enthusiasm. Do you know what I mean? You had to be the kind of person who would show up and get stuck in. Um, But it wasn't like, you know, a club or anything like that. And there were plenty of people who wandered through and came and went and all the rest of it. Um, But it it was really exciting. It was a moment in time where we were young enough to not know the rules which I think is what makes those scenes exciting. Do you know Absolutely, what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. There's an uh, innocence and a purity. Yeah, it was just kind of, and, and it was like every week if someone had a new band, a new record, a new photo project, a new zine, a new whatever, and, and you know, a new club night somewhere. Someone would start DJing at a club we never heard of, and we'd all go, okay, and we'd all go down. And, and it was so exciting. And, you know, the, the, the list of alumni from there is pretty good um you know i mean florence lived upstairs for a while jamie t was around a lot um uh, obviously the holloways came out there there was me um marcus mumford was around from time to time um you know Noah and the whale guys uh, laura marling was a huge part of it um and it, you one know, of the vaccines guys we yeah yeah well, jay yeah. jay who uh, uh, justin who went on jj pistolet was his name uh justin who went on to form the vaccines and has done very well at that um and some people i think i'm not sure that Florence talks about Nambuka ever. I'm not sure whether it's a huge part of her personal history. But for me, it really was such a pivotal time in my life. It was like university for... Yeah, your basically, yeah. And it's a funny that you mentioned that, actually, because like I went to LSE and I can barely remember it. Yeah, I was yeah. there for three years, but I was on tour for the whole fucking thing. And like, it's funny. I remember my parents kind of saying to me, well, university is where you make your friends for life. I'm, I'm not in touch with a single person. I mean, I I'm in touch with two. Like, right, literally, yeah. yeah. I do every now and again, I'll bump <laughs> into somebody, but it just doesn't figure very highly in my life. Whereas Nambuka is a hugely important thing for me. But yeah, and I mean, I specifically learned about 
folk music. One of one of the funny parts of that story um, is that because so the gang, as it were, we used to run uh, a club night on a Friday and a Saturday, and we would it was a very chemically fueled scene, and we would not sleep from Friday until Sunday. And on Sunday, we started running a folk night called Sensible Sundays, not because anyone was interested in folk music, but because we couldn't handle drums anymore. <laughs> um, and so it was just it's like come down at that point in our sort of chemical arc. It was just kind yeah, of like yeah, it yeah. has to be acoustic and, and <laughs> slow and gentle, please. Um, and then and then people like Jamie T started showing up, and we were all like, "Oh fucking hell!" I remember Jamie showing up with an acoustic bass, and you know, and playing um, like a big double one. Uh, no, 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 like right. a like a and just but like slapping it and playing beats on the side of it and kind of rapping and playing Sheila and all the rest of it and all of us being like, what the fuck is he doing? And then kind of going, oh wait a second, this song's completely incredible. So uh, you know, it was a it was an exciting time. Well, you say in the book as well that the part of at least the inspiration and drive behind you really trying to up your game was the success of Jamie T. Is that safe to say? Yes, very much so. I mean, fucking hell, all right, I've got to fucking up my game. Yeah, I haven't seen Jamie in more than a decade, and it would be a stretch to say that we were, like, close friends or anything, but we hung out a bit and played a bunch of shows together. Um, But, yeah, I think, as I mentioned in the book, I mean, there were two differences between his debut album and mine, one of which was that his was better. Um, But importantly as well, it's important to recognise he was on a massive major label and I was on a tiny indie. But it definitely, I remember kind of the quality rather than financial side of it i was listening to his record going motherfucker i need to do better and it really healthy competition yeah right? absolutely and I, I i do believe that like it's important i, I think it, it's funny we I, we were discussing this at the book show last night there there are two ways i think that different people react to artistic competition and one of them is to feel challenged and the other is to feel inspired and yeah. i definitely fall into the latter category that's why i like taking out bands on tour of support that i think are better than me yeah yeah because yeah. i want to watch them and go oh fuck, right, okay, time to up our game. Do you know what I mean? Um, and similarly, yeah, you know, my reaction to hearing a great song is to go, right, how do I write a song that's that good? Do you know what I mean? How yeah, do yeah, I absolutely. fucking, you know, what what's what are they doing that's better than what I do? So, it's, it, and I think that's a healthy mental attitude. Definitely, I'm going to have a quick tea, a quick top do up it, here. Do it, do it. I'm on my second coffee for the <laughs> listeners at home. Um, I'm going to He's start travelling through time and space reasonably soon. I have been up since 7am. Yeah, Ian, text me. So uh, I'm going to put out a podcast with Ian Winwood next week. And uh, Frank is currently on tour with Ian. And Ian's conducting the Q&As. And he's also just brought out a book recently, which you hosted a Q&A. I did. I got him back. As well. And it's a, it's a great book, isn't it? It's like it finally, is. that period in time the word, has finally. been... I covered just, in the June. My God, there are too deserves. many fucking books about 77 Punk. I mean, and, and grunge and the Seattle scene. Yeah, yeah, but the thing is, nobody needs to write any more books about 77 Punk anyway because England's Dream by John Savage exists and has existed for years and that's the only book that needs to exist about it. And everybody bangs on and on and on about that period of time. And yes, it was exciting and interesting, but your and my experience of punk rock was Green Day and Offspring. Yep. It just fucking was. And no one has written a book about it before. And in a funny way, in a way that I'm quite, that makes me quite fond and defensive of it it's still kind of like the the ugly stepchild of of not only music generally but punk punk rock as well it's not considered particularly cool yeah no, to be influenced no, no. by that stuff but fuck it i don't give a shit no effect one of my biggest influences fuck well we spoke about this many times yeah right? my and, favorite band like the right, band that yeah. inspired and, and me like, to go down and, and i don't give a hole. shit about whether or not that's credible in any way fuck off do you know what i mean like it was great music descendants everything sucks is still my favorite punk record of all time um and you know also it's a funny thing like 
once or twice in my life, somebody somewhere has said something slightly dismissive about me being just like, oh, man, you're just a gateway band at best kind of thing, to which I'm kind of like, <laughs> thank you very much. Because the fact of the matter is there is nobody on this earth since like, the early 80s who has woken up and bought a Black Flag record apropos of nothing. It doesn't happen like that. People woke up and they bought a Green Day record and then they bought a NoFX record and then they bought a Descents record and then they bought a Black Flag record. Because you can't get to underground obscure music without a conduit to get there of course and yeah. if all you need I, the building blocks don't right, you if all i ever do with my life is encourage more people to listen to the weekly dance that's fucking fine because they're my favorite band so wicked listen to the weekly dance and in the book as well you talk about how you don't shun the term entertainer mm. whereas some people you know they'll often as an artist you know yeah. i'm an artist or, or and... particularly if they put the letter e on the end of it <laughs> artiste <laughs> fuck off um i and mean you fully, you fully embrace the yes. fact that you are a performer and an entertainer right yeah i mean it's a it's the, i very much so it's a separate discipline being a performer to being a songwriter it's a, something i wish i'd learned a long time ago is that musicianship songwriting and performance are three entirely separate disciplines obviously what i and people in my line of work are trying to do is be good at all three at the same time which is hard to do that's the holy grail right? it is and it's the reason why springsteen is so revered is that he's extremely fucking good at all three but it's possible entirely possible to be good at two and not at one kurt cobain incredible songwriter incredible performer kind of terrible musician to be honest um uh, eddie van halen right incredible performer incredible musician not that keen in his songs yeah do you know what i mean so it's it, and and hopefully we all try and be good at all three and all due respect to to both kurt cobain and eddie van halen um <laughs> but uh probably more i'm too, better than them more, more no <laughs> Because <laughs> I can Quite do all three. I was no, I know. I'm just joking. Um, but uh, <laughs> but you know, um, it's uh, so. But yeah, being a performer. I mean, it, but it's also like I think that I have this sort of theory, and I talk about it in the book, and I've talked about it in the past. That like I think to be an entertainer is a noble thing, actually, and it, it's a sociological term more than anything else. Do you know what I mean? If you draw a sort of diagram of society, and you've got teachers over there, and you've got policemen over there and you've got nurses in the middle and whatever else one little corner is entertainers and our job is at the end of a shitty working week with people doing real jobs and they need to have the weight lifted for a minute or two that's what we do and i think that's noble and it puts by using that term it puts me in the same category as vaudeville and circus and musical and the theater and everything else you know and and i'm that's kind of why i'm obsessed with that stuff and i have to mention Chaz and dave here who yeah are of course man one of my all-time favorite legendary bands. Very, very sad that Chaz passed away. Um, not least because I did get the chance to play with them once on stage um, and to hang out with them. Um, I showed them my Chaz and Dave tattoo. They were kind of like, okay. Um, uh, <laughs> but like, we were in talks for them to do some shows with me. Oh, that would have been and, so oh, good. It would have been so- I was even th- considering booking them for my wedding. Um, I'm not sure that my missus is as into Chaz and Dave as I am. <laughs> uh, but they did do weddings. That was the thing they did. Um, uh, but obviously none of that's going to happen now. And You'll that's have a to great, just get great Jay now. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, but it, uh, and on the day that he died, I was in Montreal, of all places, which is not a place where anyone's heard of Chaz and Dave. But I played a Chaz and Dave song that night and explained to the crowd, shut the fuck up and listen to this. This is, yeah, I've, ain't, I've played Ain't No Pleasing You. And, you uh, can hear it in your music, especially around the sort of England Keep My Bones era. Mm. You can hear music all really rise into the forefront. Yeah. Uh, Four Simple Words, obviously, is probably the most obvious yes, example. Yes, right, exactly. And, but I mean, you know, that there's there's... There's something about that kind of po-facedness of refusing to be an entertainer and sort of like, which I just think is kind of dull. Do you know what I mean? And plus, it's also, but incidentally, for the people, the bands that exist, like I always think of Pink Floyd, which may not, may or may not be fair. Um, but like, it's just, it's like you're charging people money to come into a room and see you play music. Yes, you're a fucking entertainer. Get over yourself. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, but whatever. 
Pink Floyd don't know who I am and don't care. <laughs> uh, so that, that album for me was probably when I really got into you. I was working on Kerrang! Radio at the time. I remember playing I Still Believe mm. loads on the radio. And that for me, still one of my favorite songs that you've ever done. Mm. Because I remember hearing it for the first time and going, wow, this is like a country clash. And he's referencing Jerry Lee, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash. And for me at that time, maybe even now as well, nobody was referencing those people. Yeah. Well, contemporary artists yeah, anyway yeah, yeah. and I thought I mean, what a fucking interesting song and you. you've sort of addressed again I'm going to the book a lot but yeah. you address it in the book that part of the criticism of that song was that it was too earnest yeah. and again there's like this kind of tradition I spoke to Billy Corgan about it a few years ago name drop um, <laughs> where he says there's this tradition in kind of the music press and in hipster culture where you have to be ironic and to be yeah. sincere is almost like a negative. Yes, completely. I mean, and that's and bullshit as well, it, I, I think. Well, <laughs> it's, 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 it's an approach that I don't sympathize with. Yeah. I, I think that there's a place for it. Do you know what I mean? And like, I can understand that like there is, some, there are some bands who, I mean, you know, whether you're, t- I mean, I well, if you're electric head. six, for instance, yeah. then great. Well, but even like, if you think about stuff like, I don't know, kind of more stuff like suede or Royal trucks or stuff like that, do you know what I mean? It's like the knowing and all that kind of thing. And there's a place for that. And that's good luck to all those bands. But like, for me, it's just never made sense as a criticism. It's like, <laughs> that guy means what he says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what's the issue here, please? You know, and like, I, I've always loved the moment in music where somebody says something unretractable. Do you know what I mean? When somebody says something and you're like, Fuck me, he just said that. You know, that's like going back to that exposing your chest and. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? And when, and like. There's a million examples I could think of, but like, uh, you know, Anna Begins, Counting Crows, it's a song about accidentally sleeping with your best friend kind of thing. And like, this, the. Fuck me, that song is so emotionally devastating. And that's what I'm interested in. I want to be emotionally devastated by the art that I. Or not all of it, but a lot of the art that I like. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the other thing with Still Believe, and it's interesting you mentioned that thing about the, the name-checking thing, which is incidentally something I've arguably done a bit much in my career. Um, well, you say that at a few points, there's a few sort of tactics that you have that you mm. think you've used too much, but I think every artist, artiste, <laughs> whatever field they're working in, they have certain tropes you have that ticks. defines their yeah. work. Yeah, completely, which is Like fine. Tarantino, he loves a good close-up of a foot, that's yeah. his thing. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but it's like, I do, I have sort of ambitions towards kind of musicology in my personal life, like I like to know about as much music as I can and to be knowledgeable about it and have things to say um but also like I wish to be part of a tradition um and rock and roll is a tradition now and actually I think that we exist at quite an interesting moment in the history of rock and roll as an art form because we have passed we have definitively passed the first lifetime of people who were involved in making rock and roll and it still exists and if and and indeed the same is true of punk as a concept as well I think a part of my theory about why folk punk became a thing in the 2000s and I was part of this was it was a moment in time where punk rock which was a genre a genre that was kind of predicated on the idea of disposability um, and no future and all the rest of it found itself passing to second and even third generations and it's like well you have to recalibrate at some point do you know what I mean you can't be like no future 40 years on do you know what I mean that well, it's really... like the who isn't it I hope I die before I get old yeah they're still up there and, and he, they're, st- they're pretty <laughs> fucking old now and not well, only one of them is dead um, uh, which is a great sadness um, I should say um, but yeah so you know I, I, I like I think that it's I, I think it's a good grounding as a musician to understand where you came from um, and also, I think it's kind of, uh, hopefully, it's kind of humbling as well. It's like I wish to take the baton from the people who came before me and pass it on to the people who come after me. You know, I think that's a, a, a good thing to do in life. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. 
until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Going back to the honesty in your work, uh, again, it's something you openly address in the book. It's It doesn't come without its collateral damage yes. in life. Yeah. And I found that a bit with my podcast is, it's all well and good being honest about yourself mm. and being open and yep. you know exposed in relation to to you, but obviously as a confessional songwriter, you are going to bring in people from your life. Yeah, because no one's no man is an island, as they yes, say, yeah. and all the rest of it. So yeah, if you're writing honestly about yourself, at some point you're also going to have to write about other people because I don't live in a monk cell, um, and it, that's been a difficult moral quandary for me at times. Um, Rather than the relationship side of things, I wonder if you wouldn't mind. Mm. Um, I don't want to bum you out before your big signing. <laughs> um, the song "Long Live the Queen" mm. and the, the problems that that song obviously posed. Well, that was it. That, I mean, it, I, I got hung up on that song, but I actually that was one of the easier ones in a way, in the sense that like it was important to me that Lexi's family and particularly her kids were all right with the song. But I demoed the song and I sent it to them and they came back and said, this is fucking great. We're all in favor. So that was fine. And I, I had the same experience with Song for Josh. In fact, one thing I'm not sure I'd mention in the book is I had a slightly sticky experience with a song called Richard Devine off Poetry of the Deed, which is about a suicide. And it was about somebody I knew who committed suicide. And one of his family members was not stoked about that song, um, which was difficult for me. And, and I had sort of forgotten to check or at least I hadn't thought to check, I should say. Um, and that was a bit of a spanner in the works for our friendship for a time. Um, but I mean, those kind of things, you know, you're writing about somebody else, but it it's kind of third person, if you like. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Where, the more difficult ones are the relationship ones, because to be in a relationship with somebody is an intimate thing. And to expose those intimacies to the harsh glare of publicity is is quite a thing to do. And I think I say in the book, it's like, you know, do I have to go on dates with a fucking sign around my neck saying, warning, <laughs> anything that gets said tonight may end up in a lyric. That's that's not a thing I can do. Um, it's not a thing I want to do. I mean, obviously, I don't go on dates anymore because I'm getting married this year. Um, thank you. Good times, um, man. Yeah. And I mean, my 
partner and I have had some pretty in-depth conversations, not just about lyrics, actually. This is a, I'm going to slightly sidebar here. Go wherever you want, dude. But, um, you know, she and I, Jess and I, really went through quite a long thing of talking about how public we were going to be about our relationship. Yeah, well, that's the other thing, isn't it, is now, and it freaks me out when people are so sharing with their children, like famous people have their kids with Instagram accounts and they'll be tagging them in it and they're like five years old. Do you know the thing about Mick Jagger's dad comments on Instagram? No. It's the fucking greatest thing (laughs) on the internet. Mick Jagger's son, (laughs) who's like 19 and really cool, posts up his cool Instagram pictures of him being cool. And then Mick Jagger, and it's his official account, is like, lol, looks great, underneath (laughs) in this totally dad way that's fucking incredible. And you can just, you can see the embarrassment in, you know, just just leaking out of your phone. Oh, God bless Mick Jagger for that. It makes me love. There's like whole... Buzzfeed articles about this. It's amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, my initial... So you sat down and had a long discussion. Well, we did. Well, the thing was, my initial approach, which I've had with every other relationship I've been in prior, was to keep it very private and not post in any public way because I need to draw a line between my public self and my private self. Yeah. Otherwise, I would go insane. Um and I did that for a while. And after a while, Jess sort of said to me, it sort of feels like I don't exist. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, are you trying to keep yourself available in some public way or whatever? Which obviously I wasn't trying to do. But like, you know, at some point you actually have to, she was kind of like, this is our life. And I, I don't want to be an eminence grease necessarily. And I'm not sure that she wants people kind of, you know, showing up at a house or whatever. But, like, we decided to be a little bit more public and forthright with it. And I have to say, the thing that's kind of settled it for us was um, uh, my friend Jason Isbell and the way that he and uh, and Amanda handle their online kind of presentation of their relationship is really inspiring to me, actually, because I think they do a great job of... it's, It's kind of funny, it's playful, and it's cool, but it's also obviously very loving, and I think that's really cool, and that's the approach I'd like to go for. Do you follow Josh Brolin? I don't. He is amazing with every element, not just his personal and kind of romantic and family mm-hmm. life, but with every element of his playing with his persona and his fame. Sure. And he's so self-deprecating and he just seems like the coolest fucking dude on earth. Lovely. And obviously he was in two of like the biggest films yeah, in the yeah, world yeah. last totally, year. Totally, I will. So I will down to earth with it. Uh, religion, Frank, I want to touch right, on okay. that topic with you. Um, <laughs> Here we you, go. Uh, you talk about it really, again, just very forthright and open in the book and um, glory hallelujah. Yes. Is a really interesting song anyway, uh, and sort of getting a peek behind the curtain with the, the writing of that, the reactions and response to that. I wonder if you could tell me first of all about your mind frame going into that song. Yeah. Well, essentially, I, I wrote... And the blowback that's come yeah. from it. I, yeah, I mean, so I, I sort of wrote this, wrote the chorus and thought it was kind of funny, and then just sort of kind of shelved it and really think about it. Jay, I played it to Jay Beans one night on a tour bus, and he was like incensed and was like fucking hell man finish that song that's a that's a bold statement that needs to be made so i did i mean i think not necessarily fully consciously but my grandfather my mother's father was a priest and was a wise and kind and gentle man um and he passed away at age 96 in 2008 i think um and i didn't get around finishing the song until after he passed which like i said i'm not sure that was a conscious thing but it was probably a subconscious thing because that's not a conversation i wish to have over um, sunday lunch my granddad yeah. anyway um yeah. do you know what i mean uh i mean nevertheless my mum's very religious and and it's a song that she finds troubling should we say um not troubling but she doesn't like it she's not overly happy with it yeah I so mean, she's coming to the show is it still in the set list yeah it, it yeah. has been here and there i mean beyond that like you know the one thing that people have said which i sort of take into serious consideration is that if my aim at my shows is to inculcate a, 
an atmosphere of inclusion, which it is, that if you are a Christian who comes to the show, or indeed any other religion, that that could be a sort of uh, an alienating piece of music. And I get that, but it, I'm sort of... But that's not where you're coming from, is it, lyrically? No, it's not. I mean, this is the, the thing that I want that song to be is it's my, my two cents. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that that is the answer, but it's just, it's like I've stood in enough fucking churches in my life. And, and when I, I go to church for Christmas Day and when my friends get married and I, if they get, have a religious ceremony and I'll sing the hymns because get over yourself. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not a fucking teenager anymore. I don't need to stand and go, oh, I don't yeah. believe this, not going to sing it. Who doesn't love a good hymn along sing right. along? Well, well, actually, a lot of the Methodist hymns of the 19th century are some of the most beautiful pieces of music and writing that I know. To be a pilgrim, whatever. These are wonderful pieces of music. But, um, so I'll happily sing them. And I don't need to, like, cross my fingers while I do it or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, but it's just, it's a bit kind of like, I've done that, now it's my go. Which it actually kind of explicitly says in the lyrics to the song, you know. Um, uh, the other thing is that, you know, I, and this sort of plays into all of this, and I'm not sure if I do cover this in the book. There is the re- Human beings have what I would call the religious impulse, or perhaps more accurately, I would call it the communal impulse. It's a thing that humans want to do, is to be in a room full of people and become part of something bigger than themselves. And, and that's an, music, right? Yeah, well, it's an interesting psychological phenomenon because I think arguably that same impulse, when ill-directed, is gives rise to a lot of things like fascism. Do you know what I mean? I think that the, if you look at kind of footage of like Nazi rallies from the 1930s, that's what's going on there. The hysteria. People are, yeah, the, they're subsuming yeah. themselves, something larger than themselves, to a terrible fucking end. Um, and... If we have that impulse, which we do, and there's nothing we can do about it, I'd much rather try and sort of direct it to less awful fucking racist ends. Do you know what I mean? And um, and and the uh, the fact of being in a room with a crowd full of people singing along with the song is part of that, and that's a good thing, you know. Um, uh, and I and I wish to sort of chase that in a way. AC Grayling. Um, uh, the philosopher wrote a book about atheism in which he had a sort of line about how sort of acknowledging this communal impulse that humans have and saying, you know, maybe we need atheist gathering places and atheists, you know, singing churches and stuff. And I thought to myself, this man has never been to a good gig or or football match (laughs) for that matter. Do you know what I mean? Because it's all the same impulse. Uh, And I think that it can be directed towards positive ends. So um, and, 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 you know, having a room full of people singing along to Gloria Hallelujah might be one of those. Well, it's all in the book, mate, from politics to religion to relationships to actual songwriting. Uh, What I wanted to ask you is, did you go about reading any other texts about this form of a book before going into writing? Or did you literally just go, I'm going to just trawl through everything I've ever written, listen to it again, and then write this book um, just I, sort of op- option two, option um, two. Uh, and, and now you're actually making me feel bad because maybe I should have done but no then no, no same, I was just interested in the yeah. method at the same time I'm not sure that I'm aware of any other books that are exactly like this in terms of format and that's perhaps ignorance on my part but certainly um, there's lots of kind of like there's a thing I'm not very keen on when people publish lyrics as a poetry book Lyrics and poetry are two separate disciplines, and there are very, very few lyricists whose lyrics survive on the written page without music. There are one or two, Leonard Cohen, John K. Sampson, but uh, Nick Cave. But for the most part, these are different things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's slightly facile to pretend that they're the same. Uh, Sean Ryder just had a book of his lyrics published. I think he is a man with a great turn of phrase from here and there, but I do not wish to read Sean Ryder lyrics without the music. Thank you very much. Um, uh, You're you twisting know. my melon, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, so, um, but yeah, I mean, 
mean, I, I think the thing was, it, it is in some ways slightly structurally similar to the first book. In that, with the first book, I read through my list of all my shows and picked out the ones that seemed interesting to me, and then wrote each one of those up as a kind of mini essay. And I've sort of done the same thing with this book. I went through my catalogue and just thought which songs I had interesting things to say about and that weren't overlapping, um, and you know that that I could write up at length. And then sat down. It was interesting. I mean, I did the the research whatever you want to call it for the book was very it was a case of listening through to every version whether and and you know demos sketches live versions whatever it might be that I can find re-recordings whatever of each song and that was actually a really fun experience for me and it and it, certainly um the album poetry of the deed is an album that I've been a bit down on over the years you say that in the book it's a problematic album in your yeah. canon you call it I mean, yeah. the thing is, it is simply because we rushed it, which is entirely my fault. Um, but having said that, like, I, I, I have reevaluated a bit in the light of writing the book in the sense that I went back and listened to all the songs and went, oh, actually, you know, hmm, maybe it's not as terrible as I had it down in my head. It's also the 10 year anniversary this year, so we're playing it in full in Boston at Last Evening. So we have to learn all the songs again, uh, which is going to take for fucking ever. Um, uh, so, yeah, but it's, it was it was definitely the, that was the kind of methodology for it was just kind of picking a song and, and going what do i have to say about this what's the main things you've learned about yourself going down this deep frank turner rabbit hole because i imagine there is no better way to get to know yourself than yeah. now like it's well, quite a i think a journey I, of self-discovery yeah, something like this there were moments um there were interesting moments of me remembering kind of um philosophical and met- methodological kind of like flags that I'd planted in the past that I'd sort of forgotten about. Do you know what I mean? And listening back to songs and demos and stuff, it was like, oh yeah, that's what I was kind of obsessed with back then. Um, <clears throat> there were definitely some moments where I kind of thought to myself, not necessarily like this is repetitive necessarily, <laughs> but like certainly moments of kind of going through it. And it's it's aided my writing going forward in the sense that there were certainly bits where I was like, I have done that enough. Yeah, tick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't have to do that anymore. That is covered. Um, you know, move move forward. I mean, the obvious example for that for me is that, like, in my later career, there was a moment where I'd become obsessed with simplicity as an idea, which was the thing of getting really into Bill Withers and Motown and this kind of thing. Bill Withers, man. Yeah, one of the greats. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely, with, with both Positive Songs and Be More Kind, had this obsession with trying to strip away and be simplistic and, and have just really simple, pure elements to songs. And I think I did that successfully. And it, now I'm kind of like, well, cool, fine. And I suspect that the next things I do will be more complex because I feel that like I've done the simplicity thing for a while. Yeah. So I love that because, you know, certain artists, there's only a few that can churn out the same style of music and have people still dig it. ACDC, Motorhead, Ramones. Mm. Pennywise. Pennywise. There's yeah. a few. But yeah. if you're not changing and mixing it up, then you're kind of stagnant as yeah. an artist. Well, you? yeah, completely. And the, 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 I think it is a thing I mentioned in the book. The, the, there is an odd conservatism among music fans that I reject. Um, I mean, I kind of understand the impulse, you know, if you like something you want more. I only more like the it. early stuff. Yeah, 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 or whatever, which which is a legitimate opinion to have yeah. about an artist. But who do you, you, who do you feel that way about? Uh, oh, Lord. Uh, <laughs> you Bob, see? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, really? So yeah. you only like the sort of I times get, are a change I in freewheeling Bob Dylan? I with him after Highway 61. Really? Not blonde really, on blonde. You're not, not down into, with... Oh, man, blonde it. on blonde. Sorry. Ooh, Frank. Now I'm going to get hate mail now. <laughs> um, From me. Um... But, uh, you know, uh, um, 
It's good to switch things up. Yeah, definitely. I think that artists have a duty to change. Do you know what I mean? I think that's... I don't wish to repeat myself. I don't need to write Love Iron Song again. When I'm writing, there is a set list in my head. Do you know what I mean? I don't need to write a song that sounds exactly like Photosynthesis because that song exists. And if I wrote another one that was the same, then which one would go in the set? Do you know what I mean? It's like because I wouldn't want two identical songs in the set. Um, and, and it's just about trying to go in other places. And even if they... Even if you argue, which I would partially agree with, that my circle of... Uh, my stylistic circle is narrower than some. Nevertheless, within that, I wish to go to different places as much as I can. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm really excited. I have actually finished recording album eight. It's have not, you? It's not mixed yet, but uh, it certainly stylistically and musically and lyrically goes in some radically new directions. Um, there's a full-on jazz song. Um, right on. Yeah, which I'm was, down. Which was a huge challenge for me to write because I don't really know and understand those chords, and I really sat down and learned a bunch of felonious monk shit. And um, because you wanted to going back to this whole musicology idea, like you want to learn about the different yeah, lineages. Absolutely. And I mean, felonious monks are fucking your genius. Toe in. So, so learn from the greats. Just shape I mean? a jazz to come, innit? Yeah. Right. Exactly. No him, um, no refused. At yeah. least the title. Yes. Well, it was an Ornette Coleman. Oh, was it Ornette? Was it Ornette yeah, Coleman yeah, yeah, yeah. did shape jazz to come and yeah. refused to shape punk. Uh, maybe I could do a record called The Shape of Folk to come. There you go. That would be bold. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like, both Ornat Common and Refused made an incredibly bold statement and then succeeded in living up to it, in my opinion. Um, I'm not sure whether I'm capable of doing the same thing. But nevertheless, that might be a good idea. Final song I want to touch on. Uh, you refer to it as perhaps the moment when you went too far into the pop world. I would like to bring you back because it's actually my favourite song of yours okay. ever. The way I tend to be. Right. That song yes. for me just hits me right in a sweet spot. I don't know whether it's the chords or the lyrics, but I remember the first time I heard it, I was like, this is a beautiful song. Thank you. I don't I don't wish to sound down on the song, and I hope I don't sound overly down on the song in the book, but it was certainly no, you don't. one that was a real challenge to get right for me. The early <coughs> drafts of the arrangement of the song were overly saccharine. And when I was listening back to some of the rehearsal tapes I had, it was like, oh, man, fucking hell, it sounds like Jack Johnson. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, uh, and it was a real struggle to find where, quite how to pitch that song in a way that felt credible to me, should we say. Um, but I mean, I think at the same time, it was like I was kind of nervous in some ways about how direct it is lyrically. It doesn't really fuck around, do you know what I mean? And it says something that's not particularly hench yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean um, but it was we and, and as I think it says in the book one of my favourite things with that song was in, in when we did the songbook thing a few years ago Charlie Hugel the engineer the, the producer I should say um, you know I wanted to do a new version of the song and Charlie and I discussed it at length um, and ended up trying to take it back to the first demo that I did of it and he was like it was obviously you got as far as finishing it and demoing it. So something must have been exciting at that point. So what was that? Let's refine that. And we did. And like the, the version on Songbook is, is really special to me. So, um, but it's a funny thing because the other thing is like that is a song that is in terms of my live sets and radio play verging on overplayed. Do you know what I mean? Like, which is fine. I mean, it's lovely to have a song that people want to hear. That's great. No complaints about that. And I will play it. Um, but it's just like, you know, it's, uh, Still in America, it's the song that gets played on the radio. It's becoming the teenage kicks. Yeah, a little bit. And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have any songs that get played on the radio, so I'm not going to complain about it too hard. But it's just a little bit like when you, sh others. you show up at an American yeah. radio station and they're like, um, I'm like, what do you want me to play? Hey, Frankie. Huh? Yeah, and they're like, hey, do you want to play Where I Tend to Be? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that song from fucking eight years ago that's two <laughs> albums back. And like, fuck, man. But if they want to hear it, they want to hear it. The curse of a good tune. Yeah, I mean, I do think that artists being kind of shitty about having a popular song is a little bit 
It's like hating your own child, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, well, there's plenty of bands who wish they had any songs that were that popular. Exactly. So fucking, you know, take the compliment. Uh, well, final thing is the Floggy Molly Cruise. Mm. I haven't confirmed it publicly, but I've confirmed it privately. I'm coming on board Amazing. as a DJ. Okay. And I know you're a man fucking who likes to don, don the Hawaiians. Yeah. So um, Are you going to wear a Hawaiian? Uh, always. That's my thing. Excellent. All summer Get long. a silk one. I've got one. I've got okay. a couple. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I discovered silk shirts. They're beautiful, aren't they? I've never worn a silk shirt in my <laughs> life. And I bought a secondhand one in a shop in Topanga Canyon in California and was staggered by how great it feels to wear silk. Um, and I know this now makes me sound like the least punk person in the universe. <laughs> I'm behind but, you, dude. I'm with but, you. Fuck them. Yeah, it's just it's like, it's like a thousand little angels caressing it's your chest. It's so good. It's lovely. Have you done this cruise before? I have, um, twice. So tell me what to expect. Um, drinking. Yeah. <laughs> Shit's loads of drinking. It's, it's, that sounds it's like my kind of party. kind of terrifying at times. On it's the free first, booze. On, once you're on, it's like yeah, all-inclusive, right? It's, it's just, it's endless. Um, and it's fun, but like... Fuck me! Like it's it's a, an endless torrent of alcohol. Um, but it's really fun. Um, I think it's got better as it goes along because I think we did the first year and everybody, artists and punters alike, were a little bit kind of like, "What are we doing now?" And I think that because there's a lot of repeat business on it, I think that people now kind of know the drill. Um, and it's kind of fun, you know. I mean, everyone hangs out, um, uh, and. I personally end up playing 900,000 shows because I just get my guitar and wander around. And there's a wonderful show I did one year on the last night in a drained jacuzzi on the top floor of the ship with Will Varley. Me and him standing back to back singing, pissed out of our minds. (laughs) At one point, Will actually fell over just straight like a fucking tree trunk, just went onto the ground. Didn't hurt himself because he was too pissed and kept playing. Amazing. And, uh, and then there's a photo of me and him making out from that gig somewhere as well. <laughs> so expect Oops. the unexpected. Yeah, um, but it's really it's fun. It's a great I mean, bill this year as well. Pennywise yeah. are on there. Yeah. Stiff Little Fingers. Yeah, it's Bronx. Gonna be amazing. Yeah, it's going to be a really, really fun trip. And you end up, one of the days you spend on a fucking private island. That's all right. Good times. Get behind that. But yeah, it's, it's really fun and it's, it's cool. You, there's a lot of kind of camaraderie. But there is a lot of alcohol. On the first year, when so you sort of board the ship at about from about ten a.m. and the ship leaves dock at five p.m. And on that first year, uh, I sort of we got on about midday, and I sort of put my stuff in my room and went down to the bar on the deck to have a beer and celebrate being on this ship. And this woman stood next to me, just threw up all over herself, and I was like, "It's fucking midday on day one. Jesus Christ, slow down." Um, the other thing that I remember from that, which was wonderful, was that so there's quite a lot of bands who do these cruises now. And one of the I was chatting with one of the stewards, and he said that um, the Foggy Molly cruise was the second booziest cruise that they do. They've and been I, beaten. I said, "Who's the fucking booziest?" <laughs> yeah. And uh, John Prine ran a country cruise, and apparently the John Prine cruise drank the entire ship dry before they left dock on day one <laughs> and they had to delay casting off because they'd run out of Refuel. alcohol and they had to restock the ship. That's amazing. Which is kind of terrifying in its way. Um, I it's mean, them big old country boys in that they can put it away. hell, right. Yeah, don't drink with army people or country fans. Like, Christ. Uh, Frank, I guess, uh, I guess, I guess, I better let you go. Man, it's always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, we'll man. We'll do it again. And I'll see you probably at 2,000 Trees, if not before. I, oh, which is going to be a blast. And we've got the Mongol board. Horde yeah. coming back. Yes, coming back for that, which will be fun. Um, and we've got our headline set, and the bill is fucking incredible this year. Every time I die, I'm doing hot damn in full. Hold on to your underwear. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it's going to be a, a really fun weekend. Right on. Well, enjoy the rest of this book tour as well. And um, I'm going to come man. down and nick a copy if that's all right. Yeah, of course. Yeah? Totally. Love it. Cheers, dude. <laughs> Thank you.
when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.